welcome to a continued reading of the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bootner, Chapter 5, The Providence of God, Scripture Proof. That this is the Scripture, Doctrine of Providence, is so plain that it is admitted by many whose philosophical views lead them to reject it for themselves. We shall now present a summary of Scripture proof, showing that all events have a divinely appointed place and purpose, that God's providence is universal, and that he thus secures the complete fulfillment of his plans. God's providential control extends over a nature or the physical world. Jehovah doeth his will in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the Cast of his feet. Nahum 1, 3. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Exodus 9:26. He maketh his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5:45. The famine in Egypt appeared to men to be only the result of natural causes. Yet Joseph could say, the thing is established of God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Genesis 41:32. And I also have withholden the rain from you, when there was yet three months before the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. Amos 4, verse 7. He gave you from heaven rains and brutal seasons, filling your heart with food and gladness. Acts 14.17 Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in balance? Isaiah 40.12 B. The, create, the animal creation. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, not one of them shall fall to the ground without your father. Matthew 10:29. Behold the birds of the heavens, that they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feedeth them. Matthew 6:26. My God has sent his angel, and hath shut the lions' mouths, that they have not heard me. Daniel 6:22. The young lions roar after their prey, and seek their meat from God. Psalm 104.21 Thus God hath taken away the cattle of your father, Laban, and given them to me, Jacob. Genesis 31.9 C. Nations Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation was to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the lowest of men. Daniel 4.17 Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket, and are accounted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Isaiah 40.15 Let them say among the nations, Jehovah reigneth. 1 Chronicles 16.31 for God is the king of all the earth. Psalm 47, 7. He changes the times and seasons. 
He removeth kings and setteth up kings. Daniel 2.21 Jehovah bringeth the counsel of the nations to naught. He maketh the thoughts of the people to be none effect. Psalm 33.10 And Jehovah gave them rest round about. Jehovah delivered all their enemies into their hands. Joshua 21.44 And the children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of the Jehovah. And Jehovah delivered them into the hands of Midian seven years. Judges 6.1 Shall evil befall a city? And Jehovah hath not done it. Amos 3.6 For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, that march through the breadth of the earth, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Habakkuk 1.6 He Individual men The king's heart is in the hand of Jehovah as a water courses. He turns it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 A man's goings are established of Jehovah. Psalm 37.23 A man's heart divideth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16.9 For we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall both live, and to do this or that. James 4.15 Of him and through him and unto him are all things. Romans 11.36 Who maketh thee to differ? What hast thou that thou didst not receive? 1 Corinthians 4.7 The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. Psalm 34.7 If it be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand O king Daniel 3.17 Jehovah is on my side I shall not fear what can man do unto me Psalm 118.6 but now O Jehovah thou art our God our father we are the clay and thou art potter and we are the work of thy hands, Isaiah 64.8 And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us, the returning exiles, from the hand of the enemy, and the liar in wait by the way, Ezekiel 8.31 And God brought their counsel to naught, Nehemiah 4.15 But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that she may know how Jehovah doth make a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. Exodus 11.7 And the Lord said unto Paul in the night by vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to harm thee. Acts 18 verse 9 E. The three acts of men. It is God who worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 And Jehovah gave the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Exodus 12.36 And the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, granted him, Ezra, all his requests 
according to the hand of Jehovah his God upon him. Ezra 7 verse 6. For Jehovah had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Syria unto them, to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, rebuilding the temple. Ezra 6.22 And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep mine ordinances, and do them. Ezekiel 36.27 F. The sinful acts of men. For of a truth in this city, against thy holy servant Jesus, thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. Acts 4, 27-28 Jesus answered him, Pilate, Thou wouldst have no power against me, except it were given thee from above. John 19:11. David, rebuking Abishai in regard to Shimei, because he curseth, and Jehovah hath said, Curse David, let him alone, let him curse, for Jehovah hath bidden him. 2 Samuel 16, 10 and 11 Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the residue of wrath shalt thou gird upon me, or restrain. Psalm 76, 10 And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall go in the Red Sea after them, and I will get me honour upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Exodus 14.17 G. To the fortuitous events or chance happenings. See section 4, chapter 3. Chapter 6. The foreknowledge of God. The Arminian objection against foreordination bears with equal force against the foreknowledge of God. What God foreknows must, in the very nature of the case, be as fixed and certain as what is all foreordained. And if one is inconsistent with the free agency of man, the other is also. Foreordination renders the event certain, while foreknowledge presupposes that they are certain. Now, if future events are foreknown to God, they cannot by any possibility take a turn contrary to his knowledge. If the course of, of future events is foreknown, history will follow that course as definitely as a locomotive follows the rails from New York to Chicago. The Arminian doctrine, in rejecting foreordination, rejects a theistic basis for foreknowledge. Common sense tells us that no event can be foreknown unless by some means, either physical or mental, it has been predetermined. Our choice as to what determines the certainty of future events narrows down to two alternatives, the foreordination of the wise and merciful Heavenly Father or the working of blind physical fate. The Socinians and Unitarians, while not so evangelical as the Arminians, are at this point more consistent. For after rejecting the foreordination of God, they also deny that he can foreknow the acts of free agents. They hold that in the very nature of the case, it cannot be known how the person will act until the time comes 
and the choices made. This view, of course, reduces the prophecies of Scripture to shrewd guesses at best, and destroys the historic Christian view of the inspiration of the Scriptures. It is a view which has never been held by any recognized Christian church. Some of the Socinians and Unitarians have been bold enough and honest enough to acknowledge that the reason which led them to deny God's certain foreknowledge of the future acts of men was that it is to be admitted it would be impossible to disapprove the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. Many Arminians have felt the force of this argument, and while they have not followed the Unitarians in denying God's foreknowledge, they have made it plain that they would very willingly deny it if they could or dared. Some have spoken disparagingly of the doctrine of foreknowledge, and have intimated that, in their opinion, it was not of much importance whether one believed it or not. Some have gone so far as to tell us plainly that men had better reject foreknowledge than admit predestination. Others have suggested that God may voluntarily neglect to know some of the acts of men in order to leave them free. But this, of course, destroys the omniscience of God. Still others have suggested that God's omniscience may imply only that he can know all things, if he chooses, just as his omnipotence implies that he can do all things, if he chooses. But the comparison will not hold, for these certain acts are not mere possibilities, but realities, although yet future. And to ascribe ignorance to God concerning these is to deny him the attribute of omniscience. This explanation would give us the absurdity of an omniscience that is not omniscient. When the Arminian is confronted with the argument from the foreknowledge of God, he has to admit the certainty or fixity of future events. Yet when dealing with the problem of free agency, he wishes to maintain that the acts of free agents are uncertain and ultimately dependent on the choice of the person, which is plainly an inconsistent position. A view which holds that the free acts of men are uncertain sacrifices the sovereignty of God in order to preserve the freedom of man, men. Furthermore, if the acts of free agents are in themselves uncertain, God must then wait until the event has had its issue before making his plans. In trying to convert a soul, then he would be conceived of as working in the same manner that Napoleon is said to have gone into battle with three or four plans in mind so that if the first failed he could fall back upon the second and if that failed then the third and so on a view which is altogether inconsistent with the true view of his nature he would then be ignorant of much of the future and would daily be gaining vast stores of knowledge his government of the world also in that case would be very uncertain and changeable dependent as it would be on the unforeseen conduct of men. To, not, to deny God the perfections of foreknowledge and immutability is to represent him as a disappointed and unhappy being who is often checkmated and defeated by his creatures. But who can really believe that in the presence of man the great Jehovah must sit waiting, inquiring, what will he do? Yet unless Arminianism denies the foreknowledge of God, it, it stands defenseless before the logical consistency of Calvinism. For foreknowledge implies certainty, and certainty implies foreordination.
speaking to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, the Lord said, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 Thou understandest my thoughts afar off, said the psalmist. 139.32 He knoweth the heart. Acts 15.8 There is no creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 Much of the difficulty in regard to the doctrine of predestination is due to the finite character of our mind, which can only grasp, can grasp only a few details at a time, and which understands only a part of the relations between these. We are creatures of time, and often fail to take into consideration the fact that God is not limited as we are. That which appears to us as past, present, and future is all present to his mind. It is an eternal now, he is the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. Isaiah 57.15 A thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Psalm 90 verse 4 Hence the events which we see coming to pass in time are only the events which he appointed and set before him from eternity. Time is a property of the finite creation and is objective to God. He is above it and sees it, but is not conditioned by it. He is also independent of space, which is another property of the finite creation. Just as he sees at one glance a road leading from one New York to San Francisco, while we see only a small portion of it as we pass over it, so he sees all events in history, past, present, and future at one glance. When we realize that the complete process of history is before him as an eternal now, and that he is the creator of all finite existence, the doctrine of predestination at least becomes an easier doctrine. In the eternal ages, back of the creation, there could not have been any certainty as to future events, unless God had formed a decree in regard to them. Events pass from the category of things that may or may not be, to better things that shall certainly be, or from possibility to fruition, only when God passes a, a decree to that effect. This fixity or certainty could have, could have had its ground in nothing outside of the divine mind, for eternity nothing else existed. Says Dr. R. L. Dabney, the only way in which any object can be any possibility, apart from God's vision of the possible, into his foreknowledge of the actual is by his purposing to effectuate it himself or intentionally and purposely to permit its effectuation by some other agent whom he expressly proposed to bring into existence. This is clear from this fact. An effect conceived in Cossi only rises into actuality by virtue of an efficient cause or causes. When God was looking forward from the point of view of his original infinite prescience, there was but one cause, himself. If any other cause or agent is ever to arise, it must be by God's agency. If effects 
are embraced in God's infinite prescience, which these other agents are to produce. Still, in willing these other agents into existence with infinite prescience, God did virtually will into existence or a purpose all the effects of which they are to be the efficients. And to the same and to the same effect the Baptist theologian Dr. A. B. Strong, who for a number of years was president and professor in the Rochester Theological Seminary writes, In eternity there could have been no cause of the future existence of the universe outside of God himself, since no being existed but God himself. In eternity God foresaw that the creation of the world and the institution of its laws would make certain his actual history, even to the most insignificant details. But God decreed to create and to institute these laws. In so decreeing, he necessarily decreed all that was to come. In fine, God foresaw the future events of the universe as certain, because he had decreed to create. But this determination to create involved also a determination of all the actual results of that creation, or in other words, God decreed those results. Foreknowledge must not be confused with foreordination. Foreknowledge presupposes foreordination, but it is not itself foreordination. The actions of free agents do not take place because they are foreseen, but they are foreseen because they are certain to take place. Hence Strong says, logically, though not chronologically, decree comes before foreknowledge. When I say I know what I will do, it is evident that I have determined already and that my knowledge does not precede determination, but it follows it and is based upon it. Since God's foreknowledge is complete, he knows the destiny of every person, not merely before the person has made his choice in this life, but from eternity. And since he knows their destiny before they are created, and then proceeds to create, it is plain that the saved and the lost alike fulfill his plan for them. For if he did not plan that any particular ones should be lost, he could at least refrain from creating them. We conclude then that the Christian doctrine of the foreknowledge of God proves also his predestination. Since these events are foreknown, they are fixed and settled things. And nothing can affix and settle them except the good pleasure of God, the great first cause, freely and unchangeably, for ordaining whatever comes to pass. The whole difficulty lies in the acts of free agents being certain. Yet certainty is required for foreknowledge, as well as for ordination. The Arminian arguments, if valid, would disprove both foreknowledge and foreordination, and since they prove too much, we conclude that they prove nothing at all. Chapter 7 Outline of Systems There are really only three systems which claim to set forth a way of salvation through Christ. They are, one, universalism, which holds that Christ died for all men, and that eventually all shall be saved, either in this life or through a future probation. 
This view perhaps makes the strongest appeal to our feelings, but is unscriptural and has never been held by an organized Christian church. Two, Arminianism, which holds that Christ died equally and indiscriminately for every individual of mankind, for those who perish no less than for those who are saved. That election is not an eternal and unconditional act of God, that saving grace is offered to every man, which grace he may receive or reject just as he pleases, that man may successfully resist the generating power of the Holy Spirit if he chooses to do so, that saving grace is not necessarily permanent, but that those who are loved of God, ransomed by Christ, and born again of the Holy Spirit, may, let God wish and strive ever so much to the contrary, throw away all and perish eternally. Arminianism, in its radical and most developed, fully developed forms, is essentially a recondescence of Pelagianism, a type of self-salvation. In fact, the ancestry of Arminianism can be traced back to Pelagianism, as definitely as can that of Calvinism be traced back to Augustinianism. It might perhaps be more property, properly called Pelagianism, seeing that its principles were brought into existence nearly 1,200 years before Arminianism was born. Arminius was born. Pelagianism denied human depravity and the necessity of efficacious grace and exalted the human will above the divine. His doctrines pleased the natural palate of man, hating, as all men do hate, the doctrine of universal depravity. To say that man could grow holy and spotless, that he could secure God's grace and attain to salvation by an act of his own free will, was teaching that attracted, as it still does attract, thousands. Arminianism at its best is somewhat vague and an indefinite attempt at reconciliation, hovering midway between the sharply marked systems of Pelagius and Augustine, taking off the edges of each, and inclining now to the one and now to the other. Dr. A. A. Hodge refers to it as a manifold, elastic system of compromise. Its leading idea is that divine grace and human will jointly accomplish the work of conversion, and sanctification, that man has the sovereign right of accepting or rejecting. It affirms that man is weak as a result of the fall, but denies that all ability has been lost. Man therefore merely needs divine grace to assist his personal efforts, or to put it another way, he is sick, but not dead. He indeed cannot help himself, but he can engage the help of a physician, and can either accept or reject the help which is when it is offered. He thus has power to cooperate with the grace of God in the matter of salvation. This view exalts man's freedom at the expense of God's sovereignty. It has some apparent, but no real, scripture authority, and is plainly contradicted by other parts of scripture. History shows plainly that the tendency of Arminianism is to compromise and drift gradually from an evangelical basis. Hence it is that to this day there has never been developed a logical and systematic body of Arminian theology. It has, in the Methodist Church, for instance, a brief and informal creed in some 25 articles, 
But the contrast between that statement and the carefully wrought out Westminster Confession is seen at a glance. The third system, setting forth a way of salvation through Christ, is Calvinism. Calvinism holds that as a result of the fall into sin, all men in themselves are guilty, corrupted, hopelessly lost, that from this fallen mass God sovereignly elects some to salvation through Christ, while passing by others, that Christ is sent to redeem his people by a purely substitutionary atonement, that the Holy Spirit efficaciously applies this redemption to the elect, and that all the elect are infallibly brought to salvation. This view alone is consistent with Scripture and with what we see in the world about us. Calvinism holds that the fall left man totally unable to do anything meriting salvation, that he is wholly dependent on divine grace for the inception and development of spiritual life. The chief fault of Arminianism is its insufficient recognition of the part that God takes in redemption. It loves to admire the dignity and strength of man. Calvinism loses its adoration of the grace and omnipotence of God. Calvinism casts man first into uh, to supernatural strength. The one flatters natural pride. The other is a gospel for penitent sinners. And that which exalts man in his own right and tickles his fancies is more welcome to the natural heart than that which abases him. Arminianism is likely to prove itself more popular, yet Calvinism is near to the facts, however harsh and forbidding those facts may seem. It is not always the most agreeable medicine which is the most healing. The experience of the Apostle John is one of frequent occurrence that the little book which is sweet as honey in the mouth is bitter in the belly. Christ crucified was a stumbling block to one class of people and foolishness to another, and yet he was and is the power of God, and the wisdom of God unto salvation to all who believe. Men constantly deceive themselves by postulating their own peculiar feelings and opinions as moral axioms. To some it is self-evidently true that a holy God cannot permit sin, hence they infer there is no God. To others, it is so evident that a merciful God cannot permit a portion of irrational creatures to be forever the victims of sin and misery, and consequently they deny the doctrine of eternal punishment. Some assume that the innocent party, the innocent, cannot justly be punished for the guilty, and are led to deny the vicarious and substitutionary suffering and death of Christ. And to others, it is an axiom that the free acts of a free agent cannot be certain and under the control of God, so they deny the foreordination or even the foreknowledge of such acts. We are not at liberty, however, to develop a system of our own liking. The question which of these systems is true, says Dr. Charles Hodge, a zealous and uncompromising, uncompromising advocate of Calvinism is not to be decided by ascertaining which is the more agreeable to our feelings or the more plausible to our understanding, but which is consistent with the doctrines of the Bible and the facts of experience. 
It is the duty of every theologian to subordinate his theories to the Bible and teach not what seems to him to be true or reasonable, but simply what the Bible teaches. And again, there would be no end of controversy and no security for any truth whatever if the strong personal convictions of individual minds be allowed to determine what is or what is not true, what the Bible may and what it may not be allowed to teach. As in the case of other doctrines which are common to Christian system, there is no place in the Bible where these distinctive Calvinistic doctrines are set forth in the systematic and complete form. The Bible is not a work on systematic theology, but only the quarry out of which the stone for such a temple can be obtained. Instead of giving us a formal statement of a theological system, it gives us a mass of raw materials which must be organized and systematized and worked into their organic relations. Nowhere, for instance, do we find a formal statement of the doctrine of the Trinity or of the person of Christ or of the inspiration of the scriptures. It gives us an account of the origin and development of the Hebrew people and of the founding of Christianity and the doctrinal facts are given with little regard to their logical relations. These facts need to be classified and arranged in a logical system and thus transformed into theology. This fact that the material in the Bible <coughs> is not arranged <coughs> me is not arranged in a theological system is in accordance with God's procedure in other realms. He has not given us a fully developed system of biology or astronomy or politics. We simply find the unorganized facts in nature and in experience and are left to develop them into a system as best we may. And since the doctrines are not thus presented in a systematic and formal way, it is much easier for false interpretations to arise. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, 
I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.